Have you ever thought about that while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb? I did. I actually bought two homes in Albuquerque that I Airbnb'd, and it was just an amazing investment, honestly, because, you know, as you are accruing value in your property, you are also making money on the Airbnbs. It's amazing. So your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 21 Seeds Infused Tequila is a must-have. It's an award-winning tequila. It's infused with real juice, with real fruit, which means the flavors are built in. It's real. So you need like two or three ingredients to make your perfect cocktail. Hey, um, you know how I'm always trying to keep my house parties exciting? New cocktails? <laughs> do you? Yeah. Okay, well, here's something that's going to flip the script. Okay. All right. 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. Yeah. yeah. Tell me more about this, right. Oliver Hudson. Yeah, 21 Seeds is an award-winning tequila that's infused with juice from real fruits. You only need two to three ingredients to make the perfect cocktail. Wait a minute. I think I know what brand you're talking about. You know why? Yeah. Because 21 Seeds is founded by two sisters and their friend. It's female founded. That's right. See? Sounds See like how I know? Something I can get behind. I know. Well, there's a good story behind that for sure. Listen, if you love tequila... You have to try 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. Enjoy responsibly. 21 Seeds Diageo, New York, New York. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Kate Hudson. And my name is Oliver Hudson. We wanted to do something that highlighted our relationship. And what it's like to be siblings. We are a sibling rivalry. No. No, sibling rivalry. Don't do that with your mouth. <laughs> sibling rivalry. That's good. Hi. Hey. So we we can go through all the pleasantries and hey, how are you? And you know, talk about our day and the kids. But this this guest that is coming up made me feel like I do nothing in my life. <laughs> uh, he's changing the world. He's he is so fascinating. Athlete. Dan Butner. Dan yeah, Butner. He is the Blue Zones specialist. He created Blue Zones. Mm-hmm. I love Dan. He's actually been an old friend of mom's um, for a while. And then, and then him and I kind of connected outside, actually, of mom. But I've done a bunch of lives with him really helping him amplify his books that I just love. I love what he's out in the world trying to do for people and for to educate people on food and longevity. This right, guy... So for, those, for those who don't know, just explain what the Blue Zones are. Well, he's going to explain what the Blue Zones are, so I don't want to, like, bleed... That's good. The, That's good. You That's know? Good. That's but, a great, great idea. But... <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's certain people that you meet that you're like, I want to do what you do. I, mm-hmm. He took, it's like the Ikigai stuff, which will, which we, we will get to it on another episode this season. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, people who actually are living their passion and that's what Dan is doing. And he just was researching happiness and longevity in in different places in the world and how people, you know, what they what 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 makes them tick for so long. And then out of this came his life work. And mm-hmm. he's just super cool too. Like you know, when, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. He's just cool. I mean, he he makes you feel like it's not that hard to do, which I guess it's not as hard as you think. I, I got the cookbook and I, I made a few recipes from it. It was amazing. I mean, yeah, it's really good. fun, fun to do. You know, it's got these cookbooks basically that that give you recipes uh, based on these places where these blue zones are, mm-hmm. where these people live the longest. Well, he's an award-winning journalist. I mean, so yeah. so he does these books, but he also is like he really is a great journalist. Um, good, yeah, and good his, writer. He's, a, he's got three Guinness World Records too, which is so, also crazy. A, we'll yeah, get into that. Guys, I yeah, he's everything. I we we didn't talk about his minestrone soup. So before we get into this episode, I want to plug that for him. I feel like <laughs> because we should all be eating minestrone soup every day and. He's got his recipe in one of his books and, but like stuff like that, like we're not eating enough beans. These, these are the things that are like so good for us, more plant-based. He gets into it. Yeah. You're going to so, love this. Yeah. Episode. If you want to, if you want to learn how to live forever, check this, check this episode out. Yeah. Good to see you. So good to see you. I was thinking, I was just with Ollie, I'm like, Oliver, I'm like, you know, mom and I were friendly with Dan and you finally now get to meet another piece of this crazy family. I feel like the 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 portfolio was filled out now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm excited because I'm Dan, you know, I'm, I'm a, a huge fan of your work. Oliver now gets to like, get in on this. Um, mm-hmm. I have one pitch before we start. We've got the we've got the blue zones, right? Which is the temp, which is the pinnacle. I think we need to create different shades so we can work up to blue. You know what I mean? Like LA I mean, might like be the like zone a little, or the turquoise zone. Yeah, like like <laughs> LA is like sort of red going into yellow. You yeah. know what I mean? Just I like the turquoise zone. <laughs> like, what's that? <laughs> That's all front of my house here, the Atlantic Ocean. That's right. right. You lucky man. You're right, though, Oliver. So, Dan, um, for for those who don't know, I mean, we've done a couple lives together, but for those who don't know who are listening to this podcast, why don't you just give an explanation of what the Blue Zones are and how you started um, in in this journey on sort of discovering what the Blue Zones are? So I've been an, uh, an explorer my whole life uh, for National Geographic. And uh, in the 2000 or so, uh, I had been I had been uh, unraveling ancient mysteries, like why the ancient Maya civilization collapsed. We followed Marco Polo's trip across China. I think we proved that Marco Polo didn't go to China. Um, but we stumbled upon a finding for the World Health Organization in 1999 that showed that Okinawa, Japan, southernmost tip of Japan, was producing the longest-lived, healthiest people on the planet. So disability-free life expectancy is actually the the technical term. And I said, aha, 
that's a good mystery. And uh, I took a team there in 1999, and we did a real facile exploration, and we saw these commonalities emerge. What the they the people seem to be doing the same thing, and I got the idea: if there are longevity hotspots in Asia, maybe there are some in Europe and Africa and North America and South America. And with a grant from the National Institutes on Aging, uh, I hired demographers, and these are people who specialize in populations, to go through worldwide population data to find areas where people are living statistically longest. And that took three years. And when I found them, I went back to National Geographic, and I said, let's do a story on this. And this was back in the day where they gave you a quarter of a million dollars to do a National Geographic story. And it became... It, one of the most successful cover stories of their history. And that really launched us on. So the idea is to find the longest lived areas in the, around the world. And once you find them, because only 20% of how long you live is dictated by your genes, 80% is something else. We thought to look for those clues on that other 80%, we would go back to the blue zones and find the common denominators. And, and that's what I've done over the past 20 years. Now, why blue? Because the demographer or the researcher we were working with in, in uh, Sardinia, uh, he was scoured the entire island, it's in the Italian island of Sardinia, uh, um, and started with 300 villages. And every time he found a centenarian in the last 100 years, he put a little blue check mark. And in this one area called the Nuoro province, up in the highlands, in the, in the rugged mountains of Sardinia, there were six villages that were, there were so many blue check marks, it was just a blue blob, like a blue cloud. And he, we started referring to that as the blue zone. And then I took the liberty of expanding the term to any place around the world where there's a high proportion of 100-year-olds or life expectancy is longest. And we found five of them to date. I like blue. I think it's a good it's a good color. But I, it, it, is there a threshold? Meaning, like, is there a number of people to where then we are classifying it as a blue zone? What is that threshold? It's a good it's a good question because we kind of established and uh, different blue zones uh, take on different metrics. For example, in the Sardinian blue zone, there are about ten times more male centenarians. Than there are, say, in America, in a group of a thousand Americans, in in Okinawa, among women who are uh, sixty years and older, there are about twenty times more centenarian female centenarians. But they also have the most number of years without disability. So in the United States, uh, at about age seventy three, uh, people can expect to be suffering from their first. Uh, chronic disease, heart disease or diabetes. Uh, in uh, in Okinawa, it's not till about 85. So they're getting more healthy years. And then in the United States here, not far from where you guys are sitting right now, in into California. This was the most surprising. I know. It's kind of, <laughs> yeah, I mean. It, I know. Oliver was like. Oliver's like Sardinia, Greece, Okinawa, yeah, Okinawa. Melinda, oh, Melinda, <laughs> and Bernardino Freeway. Yeah, right, exactly. No, it's great it, smog over there. It, it, right, right. And you get off the yeah. freeway, the first thing you see is a wiener hut. Yeah, <laughs> and a Del Taco. <laughs> That's right. And, and, but but you go and land a little bit, and you have the highest concentration of Seventh Day Adventists in the world. 
And Adventists are conservative Methodists, you know, who they take their diet directly from the Bible. So they're eating mostly plant, whole food, plant-based, and they tend to not smoke and drink. And, you know, they can go to church and they have strong families, et cetera. But they're living about nine years longer than their California counterpart. Uh, and nine, and that's huge. You know, at a certain, I mean, you guys are young and yeah. stuff, but, you know, you start getting 60, 70 years old. And you have your children, you want to see your grandchildren, you want to see your kids get married, et cetera. You want to have a vital, you know, old age. And these people are getting it. And and the value proposition is you're not just hanging around at 90 or 100. You're playing pickleball or you're Mm -hmm. walking or you're gardening or, you know, you're partying with your friends. And, And that's the value proposition is about a decade younger biologically. Uh, at every step along the way. So there's different criteria, basically, to establish these blue zones, right? There's not a a guideline of establishing where these blue zones are. And then given the fact that we're pushing almost 8 billion people, I'm sure there, are, uh, there have to be undiscovered blue zones, correct? There, there, there are criteria. There are three of them. So it's life expectancy, uh, life expectancy middle age mortality, rates, and then centenarian rate. Those Got are it. the three criteria we use, and we use them in, it's sort of a multivariable equation. Now, as far as other blue zones, um, I there may be one more, and I can't tell you where it is, but the problem is globalization and the American food culture, and Kate and I talked yeah, yeah. about this the last time we talked, uh, Wherever you get this chips and sodas and candy bars and hamburgers and pizzas, which are now global. I mean, you can go to Kathmandu and see uh, Burger King. Um, As soon as that way of eating uh, enters, you see diabetes rates uh, skyrocket. You see cardiovascular disease, gastrointestinal cancers skyrocket, and life expectancy plummets. And we're starting to see that, in fact, in all the blue zones now. Oh, really? I wonder from when you start, like 2009, what was the first time you had like a very thorough account of the Blue Zones? Was it 2009? 2004. That's, I wrote my cover story for Geographic in 2005, but it was the work of 2004. From from then to now, what has sort of, whether it be, you know, has it maintained the the, the same kind of life expectancy or has it declined? It's declined. So in uh, Nicoya, Costa Rica, we haven't talked about that. That one, that place has the lowest rate of middle-aged mortality. So they're about twice as likely to hit a healthy age 90 than we are in the United States. And they spend one-fifteenth the amount we do on healthcare. One-fifteenth. But uh, now a Burger King and a Pizza Hut and a KFC have arrived in Nicoya and their life expectancy has dropped. We expect that will be gone in a decade. Um, In uh, in uh, Sardinia and Icaria, Icaria. That's those are the fourth and fifth blue zones. Um, they're not getting hit quite as hard because they're isolated, but still, uh, life expectancy is on the wane, and the uh, centenarians are dropping off. And then Okinawa, I'm sad to report, is no longer a blue zone, um, and that's a bit of an announcement right here. They're they they are now the least healthy prefecture of Japan. And so they've gone from producing the healthiest, longest-lived humans in in history to now being the most unhealthy. And why? 
because the American food base that's in Naha in Okinawa and the forest of fast food restaurants that surround it and the fact that most of the island's been paved over with freeways. So they, they've adopted kind of an L.A. way of, of urban planning and kind of a shopping mall way of eating. And predictably enough, obesity is soaring. Uh, worst case, diabetes in all of Japan. And, you know, sadly, uh, it's, it's, it's gone from blue. And uh, to your, your earlier point, uh, it's become a bit of a, uh, of a, of a gray zone. Over. Uh, oh, God. So sad. Well, it's sad, but it's also, I guess, the work that you're doing is hopeful because you're, 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 you're zeroing in on something that we, we do know, like science does know that the more plant-based we eat, the healthier we are. Um, and, and then it shows up in, in these zones I mean, would you attribute most of longevity to plant-based eating? Right, right. And to follow up real quick, like what is the thing that is connecting, you know, all of these blue zones? Like what is what is the the factor that we can sort of through line through all of it? Yeah. So Kate's right. So I wrote, wrote an entire book, or now three of them, on the diet of longevity. And if you do what's called a meta-analysis, if you look at you, to know if you want to know what a hundred year old ate to live to be a hundred, you have to know what they were eating not just lately, but when they were little kids and middle-aged uh-huh. and newly retired. And working with Harvard, I oversaw what's called a meta-analysis. So 155 dietary surveys done in all five blue zones over the last 80 years. And when you take all those and average them together, you see that about 90 to 95% of all the calories they consume are whole plant-based foods. Uh, they're eating mostly whole grains, greens, tubers, like sweet potatoes, in Okinawa until 1970, about two-thirds of their calories came from purple sweet potatoes. Um, Nuts, handful of nuts a day gives you about two years of extra life expectancy. And the cornerstone of every longevity diet in the world is beans. So they do eat meat, but only five times per month. Uh, A little bit of fish. Um, They drink wine. Tea and coffee, good Even news. Okinawa, where it seems to sort of be a fish-based culture. Now, so that's what most people think. But Okinawa is not like the rest of Japan. Okinawa was actually the Rukus kingdom until 1912. And then it was assimilated by Japan. And they're very culturally different. It's like the Man. difference between Oklahoma and Texas. I mean, Oklahoma and Mexico. Um, they're very, I mean, even though they're contiguous land-wise, but they're not, uh, they're very different. Okinawans, they're, they're, they, until about 1990, 98% whole food plant-based, their main protein source came from tofu, which they ate. They have this beautiful artesian tofu there that's super healthy. But to your bigger question, I would say 60% of their longevity is their diet. The other 40%, are things that I think really blue zones brought the spotlight to. Nobody was in in 2005, uh, nobody was talking about the power of purpose. Having a strong sense of purpose, for example, like you see in these blue zones, is worth about eight years of life expectancy. Uh, being socially connected. If you're lonely in America, which about 25% of us are, that means you don't have at least three friends you can count on a bad day. That shaves about seven years off your life expectancy, incredibly corrosive. So in these blue zones, they're living in areas where there's 
per, there's vocabulary for purpose, like ikigai in Okinawa or Plande Vida. They live in communities where people are socially connecting every time they walk out their front door, very walkable neighborhoods. Uh, there's, you know, they have church, they have festivals, they eat together in cafes. Um, they, they don't exercise in the way we think of exercise, but they're moving every 20 minutes or so because, uh, you know, every time they go to work or a friend's house, it occasions a walk. They have gardens out back. They keep four seasons, three seasons a year. So they're always weeding or planting or harvesting. They don't have the mechanical conveniences to do their homework. So they're you know, kneading bread by hand and doing yard work with machetes and grinding corn. And all these things add up. And the big epiphany to Blue Zones, the reason why people live a long time there is not because they have a better sense of individual responsibility. It's not because they have greater discipline. It's because they live in environments where the healthy choice is either the easiest choice or the unavoidable choice. And if we really want to see a healthier America, or indeed, if you want to help your family, you don't want to try to necessarily change your behaviors. Because even though that works occasionally in the short run, it fails for almost everybody all the time. What you want to do is set up your life so that the healthy choice is easy or unavoidable. And then you can forget about it and your unconscious behavior becomes the behavior that that uh, uh, carries the day. I guess, how do you how do you set up something to where the healthier choice is, is unavoidable? You know, what, what do you have to do to create something like that given the choices we have in America? So uh, there's a lot actually. Yeah. So I actually wrote a book called The Blue Zone Challenge that you know, came out about a year ago. I, I don't think Kate and I talked about that, but but um, for example, in your home, um, we're all going to bring junk food into our house, you know, chips and sodas. And, or, um, but to have a junk food drawer out of the way, we, t we tend to all be on a seafood diet. We eat the food we see. So uh, having a junk food drawer that's either out of the way or around the corner of a pantry uh, Cornell Food Lab actually did uh, several studies on that and found that, you know, if you have a junk, if you don't see the junk food, if it's not on your counter with a chip on it, you know, clip, you're not eating it. Having a fruit bowl uh, in your kitchen, uh, taking the toaster off of the counter. If you have two groups of people, one who have a toaster on the counter, another one that doesn't, after two years, the people with the toaster on their counter weigh about six pounds more than the group that doesn't have a toaster on there because, you know, we tend to put unhealthy food in toasters and, you know, we see it on our counter and mm -hmm. mm, that looks mm -hmm. good. Yeah. In goes the frozen burrito. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Pop part. <laughs> That's actually really interesting. I like that idea of like a junk food drawer. I've never thought of that. Just having a place that completely is out mm -hmm. of the way even like in the garage, like you have to actually, if you yeah. want it, you have to go, you have to take the time to walk to the garage knowing in that time, like, eh. Not only that, but it has, it has 13 locks on it. So it takes about 15 <laughs> minutes to get to the junk food. <laughs> um, I also think. I, 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 oh, go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. Well, I just have a, I just have a question because these blue zones that we're talking about have 
ha- they haven't become blue zones in the last 10, 50 years, right? I mean, this seems to be a cultural thing, uh, you know, that has maybe been going on for thousands of years as far as the way that they have lived their lives. Of course, you know, consumerism, globalization is coming into their worlds now and Okinawa is no longer a blue zone. So how does one establish new blue zones or is it going to take another thousand years? Are we already too far gone? Yes. So uh, the reason I'm living in a beautiful condo on the beach in Miami here is because I started a company about 12 years ago that um, took this idea of instead of changing your behavior, change your environment. And my team, I had a, a 200 employees in my, in my company, uh, and they were experts at working with cities to choose in policies that uh, that um, favored the pedestrian over the motorist, favored healthy food over junk food and junk food marketing. So we changed ordinances so it was easier to put a, up a farmer's market than to put on an, uh, uh, construct another fast food restaurant. Uh, ordinances that prohibited uh, junk food outlets and food trucks within a thousand feet of, of schools. So you're not tempting kids to run out of the cafeteria and get the the uh, you know pop tart burrito, um, uh, and then to favor the non-smoker over the smoker, and then a second team in each of these cities offer blue zone certification to schools, restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, and churches. And it took us five years, but we could usually get fifty percent of all those places blue zone certified. So in those places, they optimize their policies and their designs so people move naturally more and healthy food was favored over junk food. And then the third team uh, worked with about 15% of the population to become Blue Zones ambassadors so that they would optimize their homes along the lines I started to tell you about kitchen. But even a more important part of that is uh, curating their immediate social circle. Uh, It turns out that our friends have enormous impact over what we eat, how much we move, and our mood. So surrounding yourself with people who are eating plant-based, whose idea of recreation is, you know, playing pickleball or walking or surfing, and people who aren't negative, that has a measurable long-term impact on our mood, our behavior, our happiness, and our health behaviors. So we help engineer, help people curate those social circles. And in every case, it would take us five years. And today we have 71 cities. Uh, you can Google me right now. If you go to Dan Buettner, Fort Worth, there's an NBC Nightly News piece. We lowered the obesity rate of the entire city of Fort Worth, Texas by 6%. Took us five years, but Gallup estimates we save them a quarter of a billion dollars a year in healthcare costs. And my company would just get a percentage of that savings. And um, so here in Instead of the usual healthcare system where, you know, we wait for people to get sick and then get them a, give them a prescription for a drug or put them in a hospital or send them to a doctor, uh, we figured out a business model to get paid for keeping Americans healthy in the first place. Uh, so their quality of life is better. You, you, and- you know, it's, you know, it's interesting though, is like this Nat Geo article that you wrote is still probably the most, uh, you know, read article, right? I mean, this is however long ago you wrote that, right? And the New York times piece, it, it just sort of shows that there is an appetite for it. It people doesn't necessarily it. mean that people are going to follow it, but people, but there is a real appetite, no pun intended for 
better a better way of living to sort of find your to, to find your longevity you know what i mean it's just hard it's just it's it can be very very difficult you know as far as resources go even to sort of start something like this yes it is but the cost of doing nothing is so high you know about 680,000 americans will die prematurely this year for meeting the standard american diet and to put that in perspective in the last decade, we've learned we've lost more Americans to the standard American diet than we've lost to all wars combined since World War One. So, uh, you know, where I mean, we, in my opinion, we should be spending a much bigger chunk of our budget on uh, getting keeping people healthy. Uh, a thousand you know, percent. Yeah, the, I think if you just keep it simple, I the hard part is for people, I think, to understand what the steps is to take. I always find when people are asking and you kind of deliver the, you know, more of a plant based diet and having more social interaction and living in places where you can walk all the time. It feels daunt It feels daunting for people to try to take those steps. Right. But we also know that the second you just start doing little bits that you become more and more. The, you you start to become lighter on your feet. You feel better. You start shedding away pounds that aren't about vanity. That actually are about, you know, your you know you you start to to literally your mental capacity starts to clear. You start to become less down, less depressed, and then and then you start getting more and more and more into it. You know, it's the baby steps that I think are the hardest part for people in America because they're so used to one thinking that fast food is the is the more inexpensive way to live. They feel like they don't have the time to prepare for their week, for food, for their family. And it takes effort. And but, and, it, but isn't that the truth, though? I mean, isn't fast food cheaper? And it is harder to sort of take the time to prepare the good stuff. I'll let Dan... I would argue no. Yeah. Okay. And I, I'll tell you why. Um, you know... I just finished this big media tour with the Blue Zones American Kitchen, which I actually am kind of still on. That's 100 recipes to live to 100. The vast majority of those cost less than $2 a serving. You can assemble them in 15 to 20 minutes in an Instapot. So when you think about the time it takes you to get in your car, drive to Burger King or wherever you eat your fast food restaurant, mm -hmm. get in line, wait, order that food, and then drive back, it actually takes you less time to assemble it. So I can give you 20 meals that you can assemble in 20 minutes in your own home with an Instapot under $2 a serving. And I argue the very best investment you can make in your family's health is to get your hands on a whole food plant-based cookbook. It can be Blue Zones or there's lots of other ones. Page through it until you find about a dozen restaurants recipes that you think that your family would like. And make them together. I can I know your family cooks and so forth together. But once you find a handful that you actually like, my job is over. You're you you'll gravitate and and these recipes taste way better than a burger, and you feel a lot better 15 minutes later. Which, if you pay attention to that, you know it sells it on itself, and it's completely affordable. With you know the the remember people in blue zones. They're not unlike us. They don't have a ton of time. They like to eat delicious food. And by the way, they were poor. They, they ate peasant foods. 
but they know how to combine them to make them taste delicious. Now, what about what what about just the genetics behind sort of what your body can you know break down you know as far as some of these food groups go? For instance, like my wife, she can't eat quinoa or she can't eat certain grains because it really messes with her stomach. You know, I mean, how do you take that into account when you were saying when we were saying like this is the way and this is the diet? If in fact some of these foods disagree with your makeup. I have something to say about that, which is it's probably, honestly, the fact that she can't break down quinoa has something to do with her gut and it being a leaky gut. I think she needs to re-kind of structure her microbiome so that her her gut and her, her can di- actually digest those things. I don't think that's sure. a function of her genetics. It's a function of There's her— There's also food allergies and, you know— Right, right. Well— I guess. Dan— it- it is a chicken and egg conundrum, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> so our microbiome, uh, the, the 100 trillion or so bacteria in our gut, by the way, it's our biggest organ. It weighs between six and eight pounds. So way bigger than anything else. And that is the, the machinery that allows us to digest plant-based food. Uh, the, and it, it relies on fiber. If you feed your gut fiber, it will produce something called short-chain fatty acids, which once into your bloodstream, lower inflammation, fine-tune your immune system, and actually sort of text your brain to release feel-good hormones. Incredibly powerful. Standard American diet is almost completely devoid of fiber. Only about 20% of Americans uh, don't get get enough fiber. So what happens, and here's where the chicken and egg conundrum comes in, if you're not feeding your gut fiber, the, the, the bacteria that thrives on, on fiber, they start uh, turning to the mucous membrane on the inside of your intestines and uh, thin the walls between your, you know, your, 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 your waist and your bloodstream. So that's how, in many cases, leaky bowel syndrome comes, to, comes to, into play because people aren't eating enough fiber. You can't just all of a sudden plunge a bunch of fiber down that tube, say in the way of quinoa, you have to build back up to it. And then the bacteria that is used to uh, consuming fiber starts to regenerate itself. And then the machinery is now ready for a high fiber diet. And th- it only takes a week or two, but you can't start big. You have to start small, a couple tablespoons, and then work mm. your way up to a cup of quinoa or a cup of beans. Yeah, our mm-hmm. bodies are really amazing how they can heal themselves if we give them the t- the time. And and the microbiome is a whole other podcast that is like, you know, I, I, I know this doctor, he's out of Stanford research, one of the top sort of microbiome researchers. And Larry, and he, he I loved what he said. He goes, I go, what is the microbiome? And he's like, it's 10,000 galaxies. There's, there's so much to our microbiome and understanding it. And they're only like scratching the surface really of it right now. But what we do know is that that is like key to any inflammation in our system and how we break anything down that's coming, that we're eating and that we can actually, you know, kind of re not re we can't restructure, we can't put the, we can't restructure our microbiome, you know, but we can support it. And, and so we, so in order to be able to do that, there's all these things that you can do. And I think that's part of what goes on with a lot of people who have a hard time following strict diets because you kind of have to, you have to take the effort to do something really drastic 
that feels drastic. But actually, when you're doing it, it's not that hard. But like, it feels, it's just habits, isn't it? Like these habits yeah, but that do we I, have. Like, do you believe in diets? Like, do all these different diets, or is this all just kind of bullshit? You know, like my friend's on the keto and he lost like a billion pounds, and I feel amazing and I can eat all these fats. You know, like where do you land on all these diets? Uh, I did a fairly deep dive for this in Nash, for National Geographic, and and neither me nor my team of researchers could find any diet that worked for more than two percent of the population after years. So they appear to be very successful in the short run. Like, sure, if you eat a keto diet, which is essentially high fat, high protein, no carbohydrates, you will le- lose weight, but your body goes into something called ketosis, which is very hard on your uh, liver and and your your kidneys and uh uh if i'll guarantee if you start with 100 people on a keto diet today you'll have about one left in two years so the important thing to realize when it comes to longevity that unless it's something you're going to do for decades don't waste your time because it's you can't it's not going to have any impact on how long you live 40 years down the road that's why we look for things that are going to exert influence for years or decades because that that's what works uh diets are good you know if you if you need to squeeze into a dress which i'm guessing you don't have to do very often oliver um but <laughs> here for there. party every halloween <laughs> you know <Right. laughs> every halloween and saturday night <laughs> well, that's, that's for another podcast <laughs> <It> is, <yeah. laughs> but um Yes, they work for that. If you know you need to drop ten pounds to get a new dress, but it's not a long-term strategy. Never has been. Probably never will be. And what about intermittent fasting? It works if you can yeah. stick with it. Again, it's another thing that it's it's the big. Right now, it's the number one diet in in the the, the country. But mm-hmm. check back in three years. I'll bet there'll be something that displaces it. But intermittent fasting is a responsible way. I actually at the beginning of the year. Uh, I went on a, a six-day uh, no-food fast, water only, which I think is one of the, you know, if you're healthy, ideally under the supervision of a doctor, is absolutely the best thing you can do to lose weight, reboot your immune system. Uh, in many cases, it will reverse autoimmune diseases. And, um, you know, it's something humans have been doing uh, throughout history, not by choice, but in every blue zone, you know, they went through periods of famine. And uh, epigenetically, I believe, uh, they benefited from it. Six mm. days with just water? Mm-hmm. Just water. Yep. Wow. I mean, clearly, I you probably, talk. didn't you have to, like, not do much? You had to just, where you, you didn't exercise much and just kind of chilled out. Right. I went to, uh, uh, to Oaxaca to a, a Vipassana 10-day silent meditation. And uh, I spent this first six days didn't eat. I just meditated for 11 hours a day. Oh, man. It's the absolute best way to start a year. It, you know, it sounds wow. like a big waste of time, but no better way to defragment the, uh, you know, mental hard drive and get clarity for the future and concentration. And, and you know, before I did it, I was bald and weighed 300 pounds and loud looked at me. <laughs> <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> so when was the last time you were, when was the last time you were drunk, like hammered? I drink, I but I I don't. Hammered is not a good investment for me anymore. But probably so you haven't been wasted in a long time. Like, ooh, I'm drunk. Probably three years or something. But you know, I had two beers last night. I mean, uh, you know, I like red wine. I like the occasional tequila or two. But 
you know, believe it or not, I'm over 30. And when you get to be my age, you get more than two or three drinks in it. You don't sleep very well the next days. No. Um, I have a couple of drinks at, at dinner and then um, and then I'm I'm good. Sakara. Everyone knows how much we love Sakara. Sakara's our, our, our longest standing brand. Sakara, if you don't know, it is a meal plan. They're ready to eat. They're plant-rich meals delivered right to your door. They're going to help you look and feel good, but it's more than a meal. Okay, it's actually, Sakara is a nutrition program. So it's like having a nutritionist and a chef all in one. They're, they're expertly designed meals to support your goals. And they're also amazing. They taste incredible. Kate and I have been eating these things for years now. I absolutely love Sakara. You want to kickstart that metabolism? I mean, who doesn't? You having some gut issues? I mean, I am. Feeling low energy? I am. <laughs> this is why I eat Sakara. Sakara brings expertly designed organic nutrition programs and wellness essentials right to your door. So they're science-backed, ready-to-eat meals, deliver results you can see and feel from weight management and eased bloat to boosted energy and clearer skin. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash sibling or enter code sibling at checkout. That's Sakara S-A-K. ARA.com slash sibling to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash sibling. I have I have a question. I mean, we talk a lot about the blue zones and everything, but I kind of I mean, I want to know a little bit more about what got you how you started your career. I mean, I where did you grow up? I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. And then my, that was my dad there walking. My dad come uh, all my blue zone kitchen books. He dad come here for a second. My dad <laughs> was born on a farm, and I make him come with me on all these the blue zone cookbook, and he tastes every recipe. And if he he did he just ditched me. If if he gives it a thumbs down, it doesn't go into the cookbook. If he gives it a thumbs up, you know it's we know there. Middle America will like it. But that's awesome. My, my dad used to take us into the boundary waters canoe area for two weeks at a time. And we paddled in and had portaged and we lived in the wilderness. We, you know, mm -hmm. when other kids were going to Disney World, we were in the middle of the hinterland and the border of Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and then and when I graduated from the university at a time when most people are doing useful and productive things. I set a world record for biking from Alaska to Argentina, a second world record for biking around the world, and a third world record for biking across Africa, which included the Sahara Desert and then across the Congo. And I did, we did that Dan, unsupported. That's insane. Unsupported. Yeah, just four guys and a bike oh and, and, and a bunch of canyons. That's wow. Why, did you document this? Yeah, in fact, I have one documentary that won a, a local Emmy Award called Africa Trek. Uh, but this was before, you know, there was good documentation and, you know, it was mostly just to set a world record. And wow. Moments. I mean, the, some of those hardship, hardship moments must have been gnarly. I mean, I mean, I can't imagine some of the things that you went through to where you said, I can't, I got to throw the towel in, but just kept persevering in, in, in elements like that. Malaria, dysentery, intestinal worms, oh. uh, hepatitis. Oh, yeah, I'm a walking scientist. You're just, you're just one of those guys. 
<laughs> I know those guys. I Dan, what when what I mean, did you always know you wanted to be an explorer? Was that always like when you were a little kid? Was that is that where that happened? Was it in the wilderness where you were like, This is who this is what I always want to do is explore? I I wanted to be a fireman when I was a kid. And 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 then I got involved in business. I almost went to law school. I got into a bunch of law schools, but then had some psilocybin mushrooms may or may not have accidentally fallen <laughs> into my mouth and it had a time of my life. And uh, I had this very clear epiphany of tw- at 24 that I wasn't going to go into the law school. And um, I, I went and lived in Europe. I, I raced bikes in Europe in my early 20s. There's and- dad. There's dad. He's coming back hey, through the yeah, frame. Come here for a second. Um, so, um, yeah. So come say hi. So my my dad comes with me on all the expeditions. Hi. So he's visiting me from Minnesota, and uh, they came they came down for a week to experience some Miami. But my dad had a root cellar. He grew up in a in a on a farm without without toilets, without electricity. They used to crank a radio. Oh my god! Christmas. His Christmas gift was like a, an orange. And one year he worked all summer long in a field to earn a nickel to buy a Cracker Jack so he could get the toy <laughs> and it didn't, it didn't have a toy in there. What'd you do, Raj? No toy. So 50 years later, I sent a complaint to Cracker Jacks. He sent me a case of Cracker Jacks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> oh my God. It's so nice to meet you. We love your son. I, uh, and, and, and I was just getting into like why Dan isn't, why he wanted to be an explorer, but then he was explaining how you you guys lived in the wilderness and it sounded, sounds kind of idyllic actually. It was actually, actually he, he was wondering what he could do. He was grumbling because he was bored and his mother said, go outside and ride your bike. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then he took it to Africa. We did our research in Hawaii. In Hawaii, huh? <laughs> That's great. I want to be your dad. Oh, it's so nice <laughs> to meet you. All right, thank you. Nice to meet you. you guys have a you good day. Too. Oh, you too. Oh, my God. He's going out to the beach now. I mean, no wonder where you get this. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm very lucky. You're very lucky. so lucky. Um, I Wait, uh, I want to go back, though. Hold on. I want to go back to the mushroom trip. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, that, that, that wasn't verified, by the way. That was just here. <laughs> but, but, and, but, you know, aside from that, the, how do you feel about sort of the psilocybin experience that is sort of sweeping the world right now and what sort of psychedelics might do to one's brain? Obviously, you know, allegedly it, it had an impact on a direction that you were going to go, allegedly. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I think it used as medicine. It's been around, I, you know, I like to look at what humans have been doing for most of, you know, uh, the human experience. And shaman in, in uh, Mexico and Central America and the Amazon, they've been using these plant medicines as medicine, not as a recreation. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Drop shrooms and go and party, but mm-hmm. to diagnose disease, um, um, we, we, we've been with shaman as they did that. I, I do believe... And I do believe episodically it does increase brain activity uh, and capacity, sort of like 
becoming a supercomputer for a while, you know, your neural activity goes up exponentially. I do believe in that window, you have an opportunity to, to have a realizations about yourself and your life um, that you don't have mm -hmm. when you're just uh, uh, programmatically, pro programmatically uh, going through uh, life. But th that said, I would say if, if you really want an epiphany about yourself and clarity, it's much better to do, say, a 10-day silent meditation. Uh, I, I recommend Vipassana because it's structured and there's no, they, they don't try to convert you and there's no religious uh, trappings to it. It's just pure. Um, and you also, you know, most people, and this has been cataloged but or, or, or confirmed that our uh, attention spans have have dropped by about 75% since the advent of the handheld phone. Mm, and, uh, it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Too. And, it, you know, there's a very famous article done in the Journal of Science, which is one of the top science journal. Lead author was a Harvard guy named Dan Gilbert that shows that a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. So the beauty of a 10-day silent meditation is you not only have the time for your subconscious to collate things and for you to get clarity, but also you emerge with great concentration and attention span uh, that you can maintain. It's something that's something, you know, psilocybin won't do for you or LSD won't do. Mm -hmm. um, so. I find that, you know, I, I, I like project myself into a 10 day silent meditation <clears throat> thing where I just feel like three of those days I'll just cry. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I, I can't even imagine mm -hmm. like it must be such a release because, you know, sometimes when you're, especially me, my brain, you know, I, I'm so ruled by my head and I, and for me to like actually let go of that, of the, of it, the, the wandering or the constantly thinking about things or I, I would just need to cry. And I would think that a lot of people do that. They tell you, uh, day three and day eight, you're going to cry. And I'm like, bullshit. I'm not going to cry. Sure not. Falling. You, you, <laughs> you push things down. You don't even realize the things you push down. Mm -hmm. And then it might be day three or day eight. All of a sudden, it comes up and you see it again and you can't mm -hmm. run from it. You can't, you know, um, dive into your phone or get busy. You're It's just you. And... Mm. That's what that's when you work things out. I mean, there's incredible amount of wisdom in your body uh that you we just don't pay attention to that that um 10 days of silence will will mm. out. Wow, amazing. Um I, I let let's talk about we've talked about sort of food in the blue zone, you know what I mean, but but obviously longevity has a lot to do with stresses and what happiness means to you and how you wake up and live your life, you know, just from minute to minute, hour to hour and, and, and what stress can actually do. Stress seems like the number one killer, honestly. Um, and we all have, we all have it, you know, and how does that play out within the blue zones as far as just that waking up every day and having a purpose and, uh, living, living happy. Didn't you do blue zones on happiness? Yeah. Yeah, I, I wrote a cover story for Geographic on Happiness, and I have a book called The Blue Zones of Happiness. And indeed, if you can, it, people who are in the top quintile or the top 20% of happiness live about six years longer than people who are in the bottom. So if you can manage your life to be happy, 
You're quite right. So then you start asking yourself, okay, Oliver, you bring up a good point, stress. I would not say it's number one. I'd say it's the number two. I think our diet is the number one killer right now. Uh, But but I agree with you, stress. So then you start to say, well, how do I reduce stress? Okay. Um, um, Dependable ways to reduce stress are sleep eight hours. Take a nap. Actually lowers cortisol levels. Owning a dog. uh, Every time you pet a dog, your cortisol levels go down. Social interaction. So you start asking yourself, well, how do I get more of that in? And it's proactively surrounding yourself with people who you like. Uh, There's a lot of existential stress in America of people waking up and not knowing what they're going to do with their lives, not knowing uh, what, what I love to do, what my passions are, and what my responsibilities are to my community. So taking the time to get clear on those three things and make sure if it's not your job, there's a the volunteer outlet for those very dependable way to release stress. You know, even if you're going and walking dogs at the Humane Society or, or feeding people at at uh, homeless kitchens, that works. Takes effort, big payoff on lowering stress. Uh, people who garden bikes, for example, you know, it's a little hard in L.A., but most of America, we're, we're right around the corner is spring, planning a garden. Uh, cortisol levels have been measured. A garden is a nudge. You get out there every day to plant or weed or harvest or water. Uh, That lowers cortisol levels and stress. So once again, it has to do with setting up your life so you kind of unconsciously are napping. You you have a dog, so you're petting a dog. You have a garden, so I got to go up weed. You've cultivated a great sense of friendships. Uh, uh, Belonging to a faith. These are all things that work. They're episodic, they're long-lasting, and they work. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. How do you feel yeah. like you Just happiness get is into, personal, I guess. Oliver, from what Dan just said, how I want to know from like one to ten how hard you're judging yourself right now. <laughs> I'm not. I just think this whole idea that they say money doesn't buy you happiness, bullshit. I just back up the Brinks truck and I'm gonna I'll be happy. I, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I'm a happy guy. I financial finances for me is the biggest stressor in my life. I've got an amazing wife, I've got amazing kids, I, I'm I, I feel like I'm a talented person. I, I work, I'm this, I'm this, but money, putting the kids through school you know, living year to year, not, you know, paycheck to paycheck in a way, even though I do make a good living. If I won that $1.3 billion lottery, it would take a lot of stress out of my life. You know what I mean? Um, but other than that, what, what resonated with me, sorry, is, is the give back. I worked at, uh, I, I, I was volunteering at the children's hospital many years ago. And, um, it was just an amazing um, experience for me. And, and it's, it, it makes you sort of step way outside of your head. And it's no longer about you anymore. <clears throat> and that's something that in my New Year's resolutions was, some, was something that I, I needed to get back to. Anyway. The thing about money, um, my, you need money for what you need money. And it, it has, statistically speaking, a, a big influence on your happiness for food shelter, healthcare, mm-hmm. education, mobility, if you don't like where you're living to move, education, but then at about $150,000 a year, and, and granted, this is a U.S. average, um, 
uh, what it's actually not even a U.S. average. That's kind of a New York and L.A. average. Maybe where you guys live in L.A. is a little bit more. But after that, uh, incremental dollar does not bring incremental happiness. In other words, there's a flattening of the curve. And in right. fact, billionaires tend to be less happy than millionaires. Uh, and, you know, perhaps the explanation of that is to become a billionaire. You often have to have done unsavory things to get where you want. But you also have more stuff in your life to worry about. You have often a, a, a big, you know, investments you're worrying about. You have more things to take care of. Uh, you tend to have a, a partner in life who's more demanding. And uh, there is plenty of uh, evidence to show that um, after a while, uh, you know, let's just say $200,000 a year. I, I don't know what you make, but if you're uh, and if you're living in Iowa right now listening to this, it's more like $75,000 a year. After you make that amount of money, you're much better off shifting your focus to other things, statistically speaking, for happiness. And those things are the the one, the most important thing for happiness are your social um, connections. Having friends who you can count on on a bad day, with whom you can have meaningful conversations, who exert a healthy influence on your behaviors. That is the number one thing you can do for happiness. The number two, statistically speaking, is your health. You can be a billionaire, but if you're mm -hmm. overweight and diabetic, forget it. You're better off being broken and fit. Um, and then I would say the third most important thing that's going to influence your happiness, and this is disruptive, but it's where do you live? Yeah. You know, huge. you take unhappy people in places like Moldavia and Southeast Asia and Africa, and you bring them to uh, Denmark or Canada. There's big data behind this. Within one year, nothing, their sex doesn't change, their age doesn't change much, their marital state, their religion, almost nothing changes except where they live. And they start reporting the happiness level of their adoptive home which often represents a doubling of happiness. There's nothing you can do to double your happiness uh, that I know of other than moving. Mm -hmm. And Oh, huge. Yeah. God, that's so big, especially for me personally. My home is extremely important to me, and I love where I live. I'm sort of over L.A., but you get where me are you into all the mountains. Where you don't mind? What? I'm in Brentwood. Okay. I've been living in L.A., yeah. But you get me into the mountains or somewhere in nature, and I'm like, holy shit, like, this is it. Nothing else matters anymore, you know? And as far as money goes for me, I am exactly what you said. I don't need to have yachts and planes. Yeah, it would be nice. For me, it's more about that threshold. It's what you're talking about. It's being able to every year just be comfortable and know that it's all paid for. And as an actor, as someone in, this, in, the, in the arts, in this business, it's feast or famine. You know, so you're making a ton of money and you create a lifestyle for yourself. Then that job is gone. Now you have to maintain the lifestyle that you have created when you were at your highest. And so that's where the stressors come in for me. But as far as what you're talking about, is, uh, where you dwell, that resonates with me big time. Because you can feel, I can feel uh, an actual physical shift in my being when I am in a place, especially Colorado, that just, uh, you know, it just changes my cells, it feels like, you know. The statistically happiest place in California is San Luis Obispo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people <laughs> people there report a higher level of happiness than anywhere else in California. 
I think Stockton's the worst. But um, we oh, yeah. up wasn't to- San Luis Obispo where we had pause seventieth. Yeah, 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 that was it. Yeah, I mean, and that's where Josh Algra lives. So I don't know; he might be lowering that curve. <laughs> but <laughs> that's a friend of ours. That's a friend Which of ours. Deeply funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but slow is amazing. I mean, it is beautiful there. It's awesome. Yeah, I I I felt that way too when we were driving up there. Sometimes I remember I we Danny and I took a hike. Um, when he proposed to me and literally as he was trying to get the ring behind me, I was saying to him as I was looking at the ocean, why don't we live on the ocean? Like, why don't mm-hmm. we, I had this whole thing of like, I mean, we kind of do live on the ocean, but like, why am I, why do we not live where we want to live? Like where we mm-hmm. really want to live. And then I turned around and, <laughs> and then, oh. my focus <laughs> changed. Um, but, but yeah, but, but, but the thing is like, there are factors, you know, you know, I don't want to make this all about myself, but I'm talking about myself, my kids, you know, they love LA. They want to be in LA. They don't want to move anywhere, you know, and I have to respect that. You know, I know they have their friends and they have their life and I, and they're happy. I don't want to pull them out of that. You know what I mean? So it's just a timing situation. I will get out of LA at some point. Yeah. Well, sacrifice. Yeah, sometimes you make your kids do things that they don't want to do, and counterintuitively, they're thankful for it at the end. Yes. Yeah. I also think, too, you know, there's also great comfort for me. I realize that I don't really like being in one place all the time either. You know, I like to travel. I like to see the world. I like to be in different places and, like, you know, and this idea that, like, there's one place for me to be, you know, I I kind of... I kind of find that I find more happiness when I get rid of that construct. Yeah. You know, that if I have, if you do have, again, the means to be able to do that, then that might be what makes you happier than just having one home, some, you know, one place, one abode that you, you know, like we all have different lifestyles. Um, yeah, it's so true. It's like when, but you're, you're talking about sort of economic status definitely changes your what your ability is to, you know, yeah, have I, these I, I think that way. But I also think there's another thing. Like, I think if I didn't, if I, even if I didn't have the economic status that I do, that I'd still figure out a way to get to the places that I want to be, that I'd get on like the, the cheap ferry ticket to get somewhere and go stay in a friend's. Yeah, you know, couch. Like, I still feel like there's a mentality. Like, everyone has their own thing that makes them happy. Some people are more searchers and like to explore more. And some people like to feel more grounded and are more rooted in their domesticity. And, you know, I think what brings you, you know, what what can bring happiness is is really like, you know, and Dan, you said it, it's creating the environment that, that, it's 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 the environment you choose to 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 be in. The whole point behind the blue zone uh, of ha- the blue zones of happiness. It turns out what most people think brings happiness is misguided or just plain wrong. And the approach we took was not anecdotal. Um, there are these vast databases: uh, the the uh, Gallup World Poll, the Eurobarometer, the Latino barometers, and you combine them together and it represents about 95% of the human population. 
tens of millions of data points. And, and through this sort of mathematical overture called regression analysis, yeah, the, these surveys ask people uh, two different ways how happy they are. So how they assess their life as a whole and how they've been feeling lately. So they get a, a number for that. And then they ask 75 other questions about your values, what you do with your life, how much money you make, your religiosity, your marital standard, your age. And through this regression analysis or through correlation, they can find out exactly what characteristics travel with people who say they're happy and what are the characteristics that travel with people who say they're not unhappy. And very clear um, uh, in, in situations emerge. So, for example, we know that uh, that having children uh, has a very positive impact on how you uh, evaluate your life, something called life satisfaction. But it has a negative impact on how you experience your life. Your happiness actually goes down having children. So it, it's a it's a it's a two edged sword. Uh, age, you know, we tend to think we're going to be happier in our 20s and 30s. And actually, age is what's called a U-shaped curve. We are pretty happy in our 20s and 30s. The worst years are when we're in our 40s and 50s. But then happiness increases again and it continues to rise into your hundreds as long as you keep your health. So actually getting older, you get happier. The sweet spot, as I mentioned before, for income is about 150 grand a year if you live on the coast. And about 90 grand a year if you live inside. Married people or people in a committed relationship are happier than single people, uh, single people. Um, across the board, healthy people are happier than non-healthy people. Uh, religious people tend to be slightly happier than non-religious people. So when you see the data, it gives a you a really good, it's a little bit like Vegas. Uh, it tells you how to add. Uh, aces and jokers to your hand if you're playing uh, blackjack. It's not a guarantee, but you can see the things that over time are likely to produce greater happiness. What 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 is what makes you happy? Like where are you in your sweet spot? I'm very clear. So it's no coincidence that I have. By the way, if you live on the water and you control for all mm -hmm. other variables, you're about ten percent happier. So your gut was right, Kate. I mean. People live on the water, whether it's the river, or lake, or a uh, um, ocean. So, oh, you know, I, I have three places. They're all on the water. One's on the ocean, one's on, and two of them are on lakes. Uh, people who live in walkable communities across the board are happier than people who live in rural areas or suburbs. So I live in very walkable areas. I'm very intentional about the people I surround myself with. I, I'm very, when I find somebody, who's a good soul, who makes me happy, and who's healthy, I proactively bring them into my circle. And uh, likewise, I've triaged a number of people in the last decade. And, you know, I don't dump them, but they just don't hear from me as much. If they need help, I'm there to, to help. So I prioritize my social. There's not a day that goes by where I don't do something physical, because I know health is so important. You know, I, I do something every day, but something I like. Uh, I'm on a current quest for a partner. I wish I had, um, you know, I wish I had a partner, but I don't right now. Um, and I know that would stack the deck in favor of happiness. And, um, you know, I'm I have really some ideas, Dan. We'll good, talk about good. this another time. Well, let's talk about, we'll talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I, well, I was going to, I was going to ask the, uh, 
I was going to ask the other other side of that question, which is like, where do you think you could be better? You know what I mean? Because we're all sort of striving to be better as humans. You know, where where do you think you can be better? I could volunteer more, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. And I could be, you know, I, I have the same gene you do, Kate, and that's sort of nomadic, you know, I often want to be elsewhere and I'm always elsewhere. So I, I would say, actually, if if I could stay put a little bit more, I think I'd, I'd be a little bit better off. I love this. Okay. Yes. This is amazing for anyone listening. And I love hearing what brings you hap happiness. But I think for anyone listening that finds these things really challenging for them and feels daunted by the process of changing their lifestyle, what would be the top three things that you'd say to start doing that are simple and easy that could get them on a good path to being healthier more and, and have better longevity? Number one, beyond a shadow of a doubt, start with the blank screen or blank piece of paper and write down the names of your the five closest people to you. Number one, if you don't have five closest people, that's your number one focus is to make friends with somebody. And then if your friends, uh, you know, smoke or drink too much or sit around and, you know, eat chips and watch TV for fun, then I would start thinking about curating, proactively adding healthy, happy people to your immediate social circle. I know that's completely a different way to th think about it, but there is a mountain of research that shows friends, number one, have a measurable impact on our happiness and our health. And number two, friends are long-term uh, uh, adventures. We tend to have, I've, I've been friends with your mom for a decade. For example. We're still, um, uh, number two, I would, uh, if you don't have a dog, get a dog. Easy. Dogs need to be walked every day. Therefore, guess who else gets walked every day? The human. Um, walking is, gets you 90% of training for a marathon. If you can get out 45 minutes a day, man, you're ahead of 80% of Americans. So it's super easy. And then get, get a plant-based cookbook and pick a dozen recipes and cook them over the next month and find a handful you'll like. Um, you're never going to move towards a healthier diet unless, A, you know how to cook it, two, you know you like it, and three, uh, your family is going to like it too. So cook it with your family. That, you know, I know these aren't things you hear other places, but, but I know they work. All right. Dan? I always love talking to you. I'm so happy you got Ollie got a chance to meet you. And I know. are you inspired, Ollie? How inspired Rebel. do you feel right now? Yeah, I mean, I mean are you moving? You're part, moving. You're moving back the, to Aspen. The plant. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, I do a lot. The only thing I do, I, I drink too much and I smoke cigarettes. You know what I mean? Like, I need to stop doing that. I, I move my body every day. I mean, whether I'm on my mountain bike or even walking or whatever. Like, I am physical. I'm just skiing for three days. You know, I'm physical. Um, and then it's about finding a practice. It's it's not for me. Religion is a funny thing, but more of a faith and spirituality um, is, is something that I definitely need to do. And then being more charitable. You know, I mean, these are things that are definitely coming up, and it's one hundred percent inspiring. It gives you motivation in this moment to say, "Okay, it's time to get better." Um, and, and and of course, I mean, without a doubt, I love uh, it. I feel inspired. I, I, 
Yeah. I'm going to like mean, go, no I'm going to go nom yo horenge kyo for 30 minutes. <laughs> 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 what, but I, I also feel like that there is something about the church of it all. Like, like finding that community, you know, it doesn't have to be a certain, sure. you know, but whatever that community is of people that even if it's like sound bowls, like people like lo- loving to do, you know, gathering and doing sound bowl meditations and like that, you know, that's, that can be your church, you know? And yeah, I, no, but it's also, it's also so specific. Like, you know, we, we have friends like an Angie and Arlen who are dedicating their lives to sort of health and, and biohacking and all of that. And they're clean and they don't do anything that is fun to me. I love the indulgences of life. You know what I mean? I love to drink and I love cigarettes. It's fun. And I love my weed and the traveling and eat indulgent, crazy food. And like, to me, that is happiness. There's a part of it. You know what I mean? So I could never live the lifestyle that they live. I, I, I'd end up like losing my mind, you know? Well, so, wait, wait, wait a minute. In blue zones, I, they party. They drink every day. Uh, they mm-hmm. have indulgent food. It just ha- doesn't happen to be, you know, bone marrow and uh, uh, pork belly. Uh, right. And and by the way, here's something encouraging. Well, I hate to tell you, smokers are less happy than non-smokers. So in the long run, uh, curbing the smoking habit, I hate to say, Oliver, would be a good idea. But people, I'm going to, yeah. In in not that we did a survey. It's in the New York Times piece I wrote called "The Island Where People Forget to Die." We found that. About 80% of the 90-year-olds, who are still having sex every day, by the way, or twice a week, um, they used to smoke, and they quit smoking, mm. and they still were able to live a long life, uh, yeah. but they quit smoking. So yeah. you know, that that's one thing I'd love to see you, yeah. you know, Oh, yeah, yeah, around. that's going to end. I, I, but, have to say, but, uh, no, I, I have to say this, because I loved to, I used to love to smoke, and, and quitting smoking completely changed my my life and i and i i could pinpoint what it was it took me away from the people that i loved i'd walk away i became all i all i wanted to do is be alone and so the things that i would normally do cooking crafting the things that i really loved to do i wasn't doing um because i was hiding from my family and it it actually made me unhappy. And when I quit smoking and then was able to get past the like hard part of quitting smoking, I, I realized every I be, things become more abundant. You do more. You you're more active. Not just active like phys- like I, I could like I could run like five miles and just smoke a cigarette. I was one of those. But I but I Me too. But I still it, it's more about the things that I am focusing on, period. You know, yeah, you just feel better. You wake up just feeling better. But but hold on, real quick, then we're going to go because we forgot to talk about sex because sex is massive. Like I just feel like that is such a huge part of my life too. I'm a very sexually active, insane, crazy person. Gross. But like I, you know, yeah, you're you're much grosser. (laughs) Well, yeah, if if you're over fifty and you're having sex at least twice a week, you about half the rate of mortality of your friends who are not getting it. So it's, mm. uh, I don't know if it's psychosomatic or if it's a, a selection bias, but uh, ha- having sex is definitely part of the longevity uh, longevity formula. And as I said, these this one population we were able to follow until they're 95, 
Uh, most of them, over 80% of them were still having sex twice a week. Wow. That's amazing. That's, you know, without, right. without any years help. Ahead of you. Yeah. With no Viagra. I mean, they needed it. They needed a shoehorn to get it in there, but like, it's still, oh, you eat a plant-based <laughs> diet. You eat a plant-based diet. You don't need Viagra. Um, it's, uh. yeah, it's people who eat the fatty, crappy diet, junk food, sugar, too much meat, cheese and eggs. Their arteries mm. get clogged, and and so do key blood vessels that uh, you know sort of uh, um, uh, make it go up and down. Yes. By the way, it, that is yeah. fascinating <laughs> and real. Yeah. All right, Dan. We love you. All right, Dan. Thank Back. you so much. All right. Thank mm-hmm. you. Bye, guys. Sibling Revelry is executive produced by Kate Hudson and Oliver Hudson. Producer is Allison Bresnik. Editor is Josh Windish. Music by Mark Hudson, a.k.a. Uncle Mark. If you want to show us some love, rate the show and leave us a review. This show is powered by Simplecast. Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.